0: Welcome back to Surf Splendor. This is David Scales. Can you hear that in the background? Can you hear the sound of waves breaking of jungle animals? I'm sitting here on the outskirts of the jungle, actually right on the beach in Costa Rica, recording this intro. The waves are quite literally six feet and perfect. I've been down here maybe five times or so. And, uh, man, this is as good as I've ever seen it. I'm going to post a couple of photos on Instagram at Surf Splendor If you want to see what the waves look like right now And um, down here for a week Having a blast So I hope that you're getting good waves Wherever you are at But I still want to honor our release schedule For Surf Splendor And bring you a brand new episode And good news is I recorded a few before I left So today I'm going to bring you an episode um, A conversation that I had With Dave Parmenter a former guest. It was episode 101 of Surf Splendor was with Dave Parmenter. And if you haven't yet caught that episode, I highly encourage you to pause this right now, go back into the archive, find that episode, because in that episode, we detail Dave's biography, basically his history as a former pro surfer, surfboard shaper, a writer, a surf historian, Married to the queen of Hawaiian surfing, Rel Sun. So he's got a lot of reverence for Hawaiian culture and um, Polynesian culture and what they mean to surf culture. Which we actually get into a little bit in this episode too. But go back listen to that episode just to kind of get his bullet point biography, because this episode is much more just focused on analyzing current surf culture and where it's at. And I feel woefully undergunned whenever I chat with Dave the guy is a um, not only an intellectual but really a surf historian and just has so much information about surfing that I go into a question and I realize just how poor my question was because he goes off into very very detailed discussion and um, and I have a hard time keeping up which I'm actually totally okay with and I accept and it's educational for me just to have a conversation with him and that's why I'm always interested to bring this conversation to you the listener He is a tremendous resource of information and I feel like is limited by um, the platforms that there are for him to share that information. And so I'm really, really excited to be able to tap into some of that resource with this podcast and allow him the platform to share. And so Dave actually um, has agreed to be a recurring guest on this show. And we were thinking that quarterly might be the right schedule for us. There's a few hundred mile geographic separation between he and i it's a four-hour drive so whether or not we can connect as frequently as we'd like to will remains to be seen but the reality is he's keen i'm keen and i think that um he has so much to say that we could actually record weekly and you know and there'd be plenty of content there but nevertheless i think that this platform this kind of open discussion platform is great for Dave, it's great for me, and I think it's great for listeners. So for future episodes, we'll ask for discussion topics, and you, the listener, can inform the show and um, kind of guide the conversation. Until then, enjoy this episode. You can find everything that Dave and I discussed on surfsplendorpodcast.com, and then Dave's website is nowtro.com, N-O-W-T-R-O. And you can get a hold of him there. He's obviously a surfboard shaper as well. And that label is Aleutian Juice. You can find him on Instagram at Aleutian Juice. I always thoroughly enjoy our conversation just on a cursory level, but then also um, just from an intellectual stimulation, edification level. Really, really enjoy Dave. I hope that you do too. Obviously, leave your comments on surfsplenderpodcast.com. Rate and review in iTunes. Feel free to throw a donation our way on surfsplenderpodcast.com. That is enough of me talking. Now allow me to wax on with Dave Parmenter. Enjoy the show. I'll be back at the end to sign us off. Thanks. Um, do me a favor. Yeah. Scoot over and get right up on the mic got you like uncomfortably close uncomfortably close like subway close. exactly um so i'll obviously give you like a proper introduction and post and all that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. so we could just keep it conversational but it's been a long time man i think it's been two plus years since we last recorded together
1: i think so yeah i think it's been two yeah over two years it's a different world we're in tell me how how's the experience
0: and what's the last two years been like
1: well, for me, I've been just shaping and uh, really enjoying this kind of uh, renaissance, and, you know, as it were, in, the, in surfboards, where all of a sudden every type of surfboard is accepted and people are into it, whereas before you're ridiculed for coming out with something that wasn't like what the pro surfers were writing. Right. Yeah, yeah
0: absolutely. Did you,
1: we'll get into that. Did you get feedback from that last episode? I know you
0: and I have talked about it um, off-air.
1: But I, I have had uh, I've had a number of people specifically track me down, I guess through the website for the surfboards based on the uh, that podcast. Yeah,
0: I've had a number of people tell me that they've listened to yours multiple times. Like I think most episodes, people just listen to once over. But I've gotten that that's been the uh, recurring comment it, that I always probably get. because I talk too fast. Oh, they're trying to decipher the speech. That's what it was. They have no interest in the board densely, design.
1: Densely coded,
0: yes. Yeah. Um, I feel like you're a guy who has a lot to say, so I'm glad to reconnect with you. And well, thanks like, for having
1: me. I love to uh, talk about anything under the sun. I mean, you usually have to switch hats. go from a surfboard shaver to a historian to a former pro surfer. just maybe someone that lived in Hawaii, someone that is... Uh, Ridden a lot of types of surfboards, so I try to look at it as being, you know, I'm pretty agnostic or apolitical about it. Just at this point in my life, I don't have any axes to grind. I just like to get people information.
0: That's too bad because listeners love to hear good uh. axe grinding. <laughs> so maybe you could think of one.
1: Huh. Well, I guess if we, we keep it off the, the world situation, if we can keep it into the water, probably wouldn't be any axes. Right.
0: No, no politics then. We should give a shout out to, to um, our home studio today. We're yep. At libertine brewery in downtown San Luis Obispo. Downtown
1: San Luis Obispo, the greatest climate in the on the entire planet, in my opinion. It's after having right lived now. and been a lot of places.
0: Yeah, this is your hometown.
1: Yeah. Well, I've been here for over forty years, I, but I started out on the coast, and I got tired of the fog, and uh, I just the more time I spent in San Luis Obispo, the more time I wanted to spend time in San Luis Obispo. I just love
0: the climate. I feel the exact same way, actually. Um, So Libertine Brewery uh, is owned by Tyler, and Tyler is a listener of the show, so he started sending me cases of beer. Maybe two years ago or so, a case showed up at work, and um, really great beers, and so I've stopped by and connected with him once or twice in the past, and then uh, Dave and I needed a place to record today, so Tyler offered to let us use his kind of events room. We've got their music playing in the background, so that's hopefully not too big of a distraction. Might actually add to the ambiance of the show.
1: Yep, and it's Friday right before the big first or the second big summer holiday, so mm-hmm. it's a, I'm sure it's going to be a busy weekend around here.
0: Yeah, totally. Let the drinking commence. Dave and I are both having ourselves a beer right now, so um, at any rate, I think one reason why I want to actually continue to chat with you on this show, maybe like do recurring episodes, is it'd be one thing just to talk to you about surfboard design, and there's. Um, you know hydrodynamic principles that never change that are objective and we could get that all done in one episode probably but i'm interested to hear your commentary on surf culture as well and that's something that changes all the time and um you do obviously you write and you document surf history but this is a little bit more fluid platform you know and free form so i'd be curious curious to hear your thoughts on a number of subjects um you were talking about the Ride Anything movement, and what what are you building now that fits that movement?
1: I, I build everything. I, I have a very eclectic clientele. I'm very lucky to have a great clientele. I, for a number of years, it was always just kind of word of mouth or referrals, friends and family, especially in Hawaii, especially living in Makaha. And now it's, uh, it's expanded, and I'm just really lucky to have all sorts of people that ride everything from yeah, you know, I make twelve, twelve six, you know, like paddle prone paddleboard hybrid surfboards all the way down to small fish, you know, and little grommet boards, and you know four ten, five, five two. So I don't, I don't think it's so much interesting probably to the listeners of, of what I'm building because it's just all types of surfboards. But I think <clears throat> what's happened is that the the surf industry has gotten so wealthy. There's so much money mm. there that. It's relaxed things a lot, so there's a lot more you know niches for surfers, whether they're commercial or want to be commercial, or pro surfers, whatever. But I think it trickles down, and okay. so I just think that we're seeing so much of this because the pressure's off okay. within the sport, and there's. And I also think that because of the way the media has changed with the advent of the internet is that there's just that many more niches to occupy. So now there's you see people whereas before you used to see people that were like maybe big wave surfers, and then guys on the pro tour, right. contest surfers, and then, you know, for the commercial niches, and then what happened is then the, the modern longboard thing came in, and it kind of opened it up a little bit, but now there's, the, the competition to get in the limelight is so extreme that now you just have people that ride, you know, only longboards that are old-style longboards, priests in 1970, with D fins and with a beaver tail, and they never ride over, like, three feet, Right. you know, and there's a niche for that, you know, yeah. and it flies in a lot of places, not just Japan, and... So I think that there's a lot of people, you look at Derek Hines' trip and all these people that are doing circular surfing or Elias surfing, is for people to occupy a niche or a limelight is everybody had to spread out. Mm-hmm. There wasn't enough room, you know, obviously, and Kelly Slater sucked all the oxygen out of the room, too. So, uh, so I think that, that, that the freedom that we're seeing comes from the, you know, just the expansion of that based on just the wealth that, that's in the surfing industry.
0: I think you're absolutely right and like there is you're not just the big wave guy anymore like you're like Mark Healy he's a waterman and then you've got um, big wave contest guys big wave free surf guys that only surf whatever there, there are all these niches but what I've also seen is that they um, there's the haves and the have nots there's no middle class of uh, professional surfer anymore there's guys who are barely scraping it together with just like wetsuit and clothing deal and maybe a little bit of a travel budget and then there's John John Florence making four million dollars a year there's not a lot of guys making the hundred thousand dollars a year you know what I mean
1: well but I think the democratizing of the media whether it's YouTube or Instagram or whatever there's still an entryway for people that don't have a connection and you know the yeah. Dana Point Mafia as it were or, or live, grew up on the North Shore there's still a back door into it by with persistence, or just like, "Hey, look at me!" Like, you know, thirty thousand likes or something, or, or I mean, you can kind of get some some traction that way.
0: And those guys have sponsors that are outside of the surf industry exactly. too, oftentimes,
1: yeah. which is really
0: interesting. Yeah. Which I don't know that we've seen that much of in the past. I guess we had like the Smirnoff Pro and stuff like that. There was non-surf. Yeah, guys, I but. think
1: that that uh, obviously Peter Townen and Ian Cairns and, and those guys when they they. With the ASP, they were just ahead of their time because this is what they wanted, and mm-hmm. it's, and now it seems like it's it's so it's so easy. It's like we never can imagine it not being this easy to get those kind of non-serving corporate sponsors or the kind of recognition that serving gets.
0: Yeah, you were talking about um, fulfilling a little niche. I feel like what's been happening in the board building side of things, anyways, is like the big companies. Are suffering like the largest brands that we've all known that have been here for the last twenty years or whatever aren't selling as many surfboards as they once did, but there's a lot more little guys who are maybe generating three hundred boards a year, who are still making three hundred boards a year. Their business hasn't gone down, um, but there seems to be more of them as well. I guess filling those niches that you're well, talking ap- I about. I
1: absolutely agree with that. I think that's it's a healthy thing and it's necessary. Yeah. I think that the big labels are doing. Going the route of the dodo, the same way that they did in the '60s with a shortboard. Okay. You know, they they had you know there was a vested interest for these big labels with huge showrooms full of ten-two nose riders, you know, yeah. with you know T-bands and and tail blocks and everything. There was a vested interest for them to keep that keep those boards viable when all these people started going to the back door backyard yeah. to build surfboards and. Um, it's it's uh, there's I think there's a saying in paleontology that you know, like dealing with dinosaurs is that over ornamentation always leads to extinction, mm. and they're just they're, it's just they're too big, and the way that the surfboard the equilibrium of the surfboard uh, is really the way that you build them is really a cottage industry, and it's always I remember Gordon Clark telling me too that the the, the best thing is to be kind of in the in the middle be kind of a, a medium-sized builder the small guys have a hard time and the big guys have a hard time the best thing is to be in the middle efficient building it on a cottage industry probably on a local level and that's the kind of thing that he always supported
0: yeah do do you feel like the price point for those boards now is higher than
1: it's ever it's been it's way higher because there's an appreciation for uh i, mean, I think all the 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 uh kind of perceived value in a surfboard it's coming out of the cosmetics, like the glassing that you see from some of these premier glass shops with really good resin tints and cut laps and pin lines and, and uh, you know, like the, the, one of my, to, to name names, is my premier glassers, Waterman's Guild in Santa Ana. And I've been using them for, uh, since, you know, like the early 80s. Oh, okay. As before I was even shaping, you know, commercially, they did a lot of the Rusty Priesendorfers boards and you know if you see the level of work like i don't feel bad giving somebody a surfboard you may say a six five single fin six channel board gloss and polish with tints. it's not a big deal to charge the prices that you're seeing for those things because they look so nice and they're so well built
0: yeah and i think that um people are willing to pay for artisan craftsmanship across the board whether it's a um like a cutting board or yeah. a knife or well if cheese you remember too, the uh,
1: the that model existed in the surf boom in Japan for a number of years from the 70s and 80s and they always had they would pay high, you know a lot of you know high prices for something that was really on that artisanal level you know they yeah. value that that kind of craftsmanship and I think maybe like what we're catching up to here in California and the mainland is is kind of like turning Japanese you know where yeah. people are appreciating the craftsmanship in these boards, and realizing after we've rebounded from the whole molded thing yeah. during the surf boom in the early 2000s, and, and through to the recession, there were so many stamped-out boards, so many pop, you know what you call pop-outs or molded boards, and some of them were good boards. But I think that this newer generation of surfer wants to have something that, like a lot of things that the hipster or millennial thing wants, is they want something local and sustainable and, and built on a, on a smaller level. It's it's yeah. not just know, shipped in by the container with a serial number on it.
0: That Japanese reference, I mean, the culture is based on a reverence of refinement and um, you know, craftsmanship and precision and practicing something over and over. It's reflective of the culture, obviously. Exactly. And
1: something that really fits in with surfing is that all those things even though they're a very highly sophisticated civilized, sophisticated culture um, they, they like these handmade and uh, especially things that can go back, you know, centuries. These builders of, of knives or, or swords or whatever else, glass balls, anything. But they also have a, a deep appreciation for how those things interface with nature. Yeah. Or it doesn't matter how much technology's gone into it, because it's really it's that reverence for the space and nature and that poetic side of nature and how those things fit in. That's the surfboard.
0: So interesting. I haven't thought of that. What about? You've obviously been building boards now since I don't know
1: how long have you been. Well, I started probably 1988 was probably when okay. I started. Like I think my best friend from Newport, Carl Weiser, who was an ASP judge, he I think he paid me fifty dollars for like a board I made him. And really in 1988, and that was the first time. Otherwise, I was just always backyard messing right. around. So,
0: what of the biggest challenges? Obviously, you've seen a lot of trans. The business has transitioned through a lot of phases in that time. What have the biggest challenges been for you, and what have some of the most recent challenges been?
1: Well, I think for most small builders, the the problem is supply lines and logistics. And and I tend to I do everything myself. You know, I cut all the lambs, take the boards to the glassers, go down to Kinkos and run off order sheets. I do everything because don't have not only can you not afford to have anybody else do it, but it would take you more time to explain to them what you want to do than you, you just do it yourself. So. I think that, uh, I think for most builders, the whole thing is, uh, is to just decide early on what your, what your market is, what you, what your target is. And me coming out of Rusty Priesendorfers, you know, very, you know, highly regarded pro-surfing stable of making boards for the best surfers in the world. I, I saw that the business model was, uh, troublesome because you were making boards for pro surfers and those boards always needed to be rushed out they usually were free they were usually comped and then I was I used to see how boards going through the glassing process for pro surfers cost you double because not only did you have to pay for those boards like Rusty would have to pay for them but they also you're losing money on the stock boards or the paying customers boards that are getting displaced while Joe you know Joe Hotshot's boards getting glassed because he's got to make it to the Ipanema Pro or something And having been a pro surfer and and myself, and saw how badly I behaved, (laughs) I just figured I didn't want nothing of that. So I always figured I was gonna. I wanted to build boards for the underserved customers, that people that were deeply involved with surfing, but they weren't professionals. They're blue collar surfers, but they had a lot of uh, uh, you know background, a lot of experience. But they, I thought that they were maybe underserved by because back then you either had like beer belly boards, fun boards, or you had Pro pro level surfboards, and there's really nothing in between, you know, like in that. the late '80s, early '90s, hmm. and so that's where I decided to do my work in, hmm. in that making alternative boards for guys that are good, that but don't want to or cannot ride, you know, the, the super short, you know, mostly submerged surfboards that we see. Sure.
0: Well, I mean, you started off by saying listeners wouldn't be interested in hearing exactly what boards you're building. But I'm curious, what do people come to you for? You know, if you don't have a line of models on the website that they can pick and choose, um, are they just coming to you for your recommendation? I feel like,
1: honestly, I feel like a country doctor, like in the 1940s, where people come to me with problems, and they're not getting they're they're getting underserved by quackery out there or they're falling for the marketing the hang tags and the other surfboards and I just give it to them straight you want to talk to me about what your problems are and I'll tell you what works what doesn't why or how many t- iterations of this type of design we've seen since you know Tom Blake and uh, and when we just go from there yeah and just like an honest uh, appraisal and discussion of what their symptoms are and then we try to build something that's that's an honest you know reaction to that. Seems so logical. Using all the components. <laughs> well, you just look at components. Every component, everything you do to a surfboard you know, adds to or subtracts from certain things. Like things that make a board fast make it stiff. Things that make it loose make it slow. And one of my biggest things that I tell people that I almost have to cut and paste almost in every email that I send out is that when they ask me, well, so-and-so says this, how does this work? How do these spins work? And I say, everything you do or put on a surfboard does something. But it's not always what they say it is. Right. And that's the, probably the biggest maxim that I could think of. Well, I um,
0: posted an episode with a surfboard shaper recently and somebody left a comment going hey, why don't you talk more about how a double concave performs in the water or a single concave. You know, explain these design elements and how they translate in the water. And I didn't reply to them yet. Because I kind of wanted to maybe have the conversation on the air, but really it's kind of because of what you just said, which is, yes, there's hydrodynamic principles at play that are
1: objective, but they interact with the other design principles differently. Well, and that's only part of it, because there's too many variables. The, the, the biggest problem is the variables also in the surfer themselves in the wave. so you throw in all these things and it makes it basically impossible to say you know, categorically across the board that this does this and you know it's there's the surfer itself there's just even on the exact same board even if everybody agrees that a certain bottom contour or a certain shape does this then you're going to have a surfer that's a certain height surfer, different stance different fins all these you know, how the board's glassed how it's sanded you know different flex patterns and things and that's even changes through the life of the board too many variables right so it ends up being kind of what I always say is that kind of cut-and-try period of aviation in the 20s and 30s and up, up until the war. And where people could go out and build an airplane, fly it, come back, carve it like a boomerang, throw it up, you know, see if it goes. You know? Yeah. It's, it's, we're still in that thing. There's, when, when someone comes out and tries to test tank it or say that you, know, you hear these really you know seductive-sounding technical terms, it's usually bullshit totally. But it also feels almost like a cop-out to
0: give that answer to the guy who wrote the comment, because then what are you selling, or what magic are you working once the customer comes to you and says, I have these needs, how do you answer their question? You're talking about shamanism
1: right there. You're talking about people go in and, and they'll get some sort of ground-up root or you know chicken bones and said this will cure your, your ills here, and, they, and it's fine, they go away happy. The customer or the patient goes away happy because they you know, shaman has given him that. Yeah. So I think a lot of there's that's the problem between superstition and that kind of fetishistic way that people deal with surfboards. And I've always just tried to look at it like like airplanes. You know, they they everybody can agree on a plane. Doesn't no matter what, a 30 hour pilot or a 3,000 hour pilot go on a plane. They can say yes, it has these handling characteristics. And we can't really do that in surfboards because of all the variables and all the psychology and everything. But but try to look at the same principles that, that aeronautics and aerodynamics and everything works on and, and try to apply it to, to surfboards basically just to keep the bullshit out of it. Hmm. I feel like in all areas
0: of design, it, everything usually regresses back to like the simplest form. And a lot of, especially with something that has that many variables... I'm inclined to just think that, like, the most simple lines, the most uh, true curve without asymmetry or even channels or whatever tends to feel right to me because there are too many bar- variables. And once you start adding these different contours and these different angles, I don't know how to account for it in terms of performance. And so I tend to gravitate towards simplicity.
1: Um, yeah, but then that, that belies the fact that if how many... Surfboard advances we've had that were mistakes. Okay, a lot of things were just mistakes in production. Someone was asleep at the wheel. A board, you know, a board came out of a, a jig backwards, like the the Bell-Z Pig, or Morris Cole's board V, or other. There's been a lot of things where mistakes have happened, and we just go, oh wow, that works. Let's run with it. So it's it's really just cut and try. And simplicity is good, yes, but it, it's you just have to know what your components are. Like, each, each design component, you know, width, thickness, I think we're in a very narrow... Nothing's ever going to change in surfboards. We know how, how wide is too wide and how narrow is too narrow, how long is too long. And how, right. And we're, we're there. So, within that, boards are just always going to expand and contract okay. back and forth. And they're going to mix, you know, genres. You're going to see wide-tailed boards and, and points some things from you know, pro-surfing boards or long boards. Or you're going to see things that we've learned from tow boards you know infiltrating it and it's and it's fantastic as long as people look at it you know without that superstition or that mumbo jumbo yeah you can't just it's really easy to bamboozle people i see it all the time but just as a surfer another thing that i don't see the the there's not there's a lot of great shapers out there there's not many designers okay and why is there not many designers because we don't have many surfer shapers left the people that have really made an impact are Surfer Shapers. You know, your Simon Andersons, your Mark Richards, we're still coasting on those guys. Queen Lynch, uh, the Surfer Shaper is what gave us all our big design leaps. It's always been backyard. It's always been a guy trying to get out there in the water to try something the next day. It's never been a big concern, a big label, a big factory. They've never done anything except for refine things. Right. Make it look prettier maybe improve the materials. But the uh, the... The... The design elements are there. If you ride a lot of different surfboards, if you try everything that you can possibly try and are open-minded and objective about it, then if you do go into a shaping room and you're a shaper, you can apply that because you can just go, well, I know from past experience, seat of the pants, being a surfer, that this works. I wonder if I leaven it or kind of balance it against this. But... Too many people are brainwashed by the media, surf media, and what they see, what the pros are riding, what the hot groovy shapers that are in you know, surfing magazine winning surfboard shaper of the year, what they say. And so, therefore, they're always just going to end up being you know, kind of shunted into that fashion yeah. of what's in fashion with cute model names or whatever. And what you really need to do is just approach it practically. Just totally objectively just going, well, we know that Flats make make a board fast. It creates resistance so it's stiffer, so let's leaven it or balance it against this. It's that simple. And then it takes a shaper's control over the tools and the foam and the knowledge of that to bring it to the table. But I would much rather ride a surfboard from a you know board made by a really good surfer uh that's done twenty-five boards than somebody that's shaped 10,000 that's mm. just been, you know, drank the punch. Mm-hmm.
0: Where do you think the biggest strides can be made? Um, in board design and or materials?
1: Well, I think the materials are are what they are. Everybody's always talking about how they're going to do this and they're going to get more space-age. But here we are with polyurethane. I think the last time we went through this was 20-some years ago. Everybody was talking about this and that and EPS and epoxy. And I think there's just a wider acceptance of these materials. And also, I think a lot of the glassers, because of the the, uh, stand-up paddleboard boom, is that there's a lot of... Uh, people in the industry that are more, you know, conversant with working with epoxies and polystyrenes. So once again, just like the surfboard renaissance spreading out, we're seeing the familiarity and, and use of a lot of different materials too. But to get back to your, what you're asking, polyurethane, and I just I think that it's it's a great material. I've always I've never wanted to throw it away and just say, well, we need to do this. And go somewhere else because I think it complicates and and makes more expensive the surfboard building process. I always said that what you want to do is maximize the materials we have, and a lot of builders don't maximize the foams and the resins and the glasses that we have. Mm-hmm. If you maximize, I mean, just in conscientious use of it, and picking okay. the right stuff, picking the right glasses, the right you know the right yarns. Uh, overshaping is a big thing. A lot of the shaping machines have gotten better at indexing the deck into their machines, but you still can't beat a Back, uh, conscientious backyard shaper, like what I'll do is I'll just go and barely scrape the deck. You know, I'll just take the tiny corner of that planer and I use an abrasive drub, and I'll just I'll sc- scrape the crust off. And it's hard to shape later, blending all that into the deck. But it's nice to have to know that your customer has like two layers of four ounce s on a, on a even a super light blank where there is crust right there. It's not going to just. know turn into a lunar surface every time he bangs his knees on it right so there's there's a lot there's an understanding of all those those things too that that go into making a good strong board a lot of i think glassers get a lot of the blame for things but i always tell people it's usually the shaper they use the wrong foam they pick they're lazy they pick they use blanks that they're familiar with a lot of times they just can machine a certain blank that might be too big for board you want Mm -hmm. and uh or whatever's at hand, and, and it's a hidden thing. They can just shape the hell out of the deck, and then the glasser gets the green, too. And then a lot of glassers use, you know, the cheap casting resins that are just easy to use, and the e-glasses. There's a lot of ways that you can maximize it to make that, that surfboard that you're getting worth that price and, and going to last a number of years. Right. Um, in regard to design and
0: ways to advance the cra- surfboard design... I always look at big big wave paddling guns as like an area that there seems to be more room for improvement. Like the way guys are riding big waves isn't that different than they were riding them twenty years ago. You need a lot of foam to paddle into the wave, and then they go straight, and maybe they bottom turn. You know, like that's really what they've been doing all along. And so I feel like we're gonna need to figure out how to turn those boards at some point.
1: Yeah, they don't. That's yeah. I remember the early uh, tow in era. Like in the early 90s or mid 90s I, I people were talking about how this was the, the future and I remember talking to I think it was Brock Little or I said you, you know you guys can ride these waves on a, a surfboard you just need to make them big you know like Flippy Hawkman used to have this big like 16 foot board or something it's, people I think the problem with the big wave thing now is they don't really understand the physics at work problem with these guns now that, that people are starting to, to come back into using paddling guns is. They don't understand that the physics involved, and really, tow end surfing proved you don't need a big board to ride the wave. You just need a big board to catch it. So it's right. a paddleboard. So ideally, if you had like a 16-foot Molokai Channel prone paddleboard, you could catch anything, but you wouldn't be able to control it. So between that balance of having a, a big stock class paddleboard, prone paddleboard with a convex bottom and narrow, that could just outrace a wave and what you can actually control in the wave, there's your compromise in that in between those two areas is where we need to go the biggest thing that i see is this is this misunderstanding where i see people putting multi-fins like quad fins on big wave guns and i can't tell you how many arguments i have with people it doesn't work it's just drag every single appendage you put on a surfboard bottom just like in an airplane if there's a strut a rivet head anything that you put on that's in the water stream or the airstream is drag. And unless it earns back a performance advantage somehow by leverage or allowing you to reset gravity by climbing and dropping, then it's just drag. And when you double the amount of drag, you, I mean, when you double your speed, you quadruple the amount of drag. That's a that's a physical law. So what, you, what happens when you see these guys on some of these poorly designed boards, especially at a place like Mavericks, which is a, a perfect inclined plane, it just keeps building. And so you get these board speeds that build up, and notice I said board speed, yeah, because it's really the speed of the, the water going under the hull. So it's not just like what the GPS would show you tracking. you got to think about the wind and the water, like the amount, the speed that those water molecules are going under the, the hull, it's like speedboat. Mm-hmm. And the, the water just can't get off the board fast enough can't get around the fins off the board over all that curve and the outline and the rocker and so that's why they hit that kind of like terminal speed and they just go it's like getting the wobbles on a skateboard sure so did you ever see that in those old movies of the 70s of like the Smirnoff of Reno and Mark Richards surfing 25 foot Waimea on those old no they didn't those boards could handle any top speed and they wouldn't do that they wouldn't just hit you know a max speed and then just overload and throw you off so and if you're not if you're not pumping a, a 10-6 gun, then why do you need the multi fence? They're 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 designed, they're shaped on the sides, they're asymmetrically foiled, towed in, everything that they're doing is are set to incur drag. And if you're going in a straight line, that's just the the water's gonna get to a point where it builds up mm-hmm. in there and then just lifts it up and you explode. That's why you see that a lot. So what uh,
0: design implements can, or what design elements can be implemented to improve and allow maneuverability in big wave circuit. Well, I think you just go back to Brewer. Brewer always
1: said that he wanted the boards with a clean exhaust. And he, he, mm. was the, he was the guy that bridged the longboard era and our present era of guns with his pipeliners and his pocket rockets and his miniguns. He was the guy that, like, every gun that's out there now has his jeans in. You know, the flatter bottoms, harder edges in a different place and a clean exhaust a, a little crisp V back out of the tail what you want is just water the water to get off the board as fast as it came on and if you do that you know and the rest of the design's good you're not going to have those problems yeah. you're going to be able to operate at any high speed and not just hit that wall okay it's like basically like a sonic boom it's like that sonic that uh, sound barrier that we used to talk about you know that Jaeger and those guys crushed in the you know in the late 40s uh, that still exists and it's because people don't understand the physics of what they're doing and so, at some point, like I said, it, 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 there's a there's a paddle board, and then there's something you can control. So in between there, you probably they need to be narrower. The boards have to be flat. The rockers have to be fairly straight off the tail. It needs to be a single fin, or uh, perhaps low low runners that don't have much drag, like little bonzer type fins. Maybe a number of those. Something. I mean, some, I mean
0: the single fin helps with the speed, but um, maneuverability is what we're going to want to see on big wave surfing, right? That does
1: though. What do you mean? Outside of toe surfing, who's maneuvering? I haven't seen anybody. Nobody does, but Nobody, that's what yeah. I'm saying is that's got to be the next I, evolution. Guys used to at Waimea. I mean, Mr. I seen Mr. the first time he ever went out of Waimea on his Brewer gun. He went up, did a top turn on the lip. Guys, no way. Yeah. Well, how big it was that board? It was like, I think he had, it might have been his seven eleven or something like that. But he, wow. He, it, it can be done. It's just people think single pins are stiff. They're 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 actually faster in a test tank if you put water the water flow the the water goes around if it's properly foiled and there's the least amount of drag so they Mm -hmm. actually are faster it's just that multi-fin boards as we know them surf faster for a number of reasons one and i'll get to this in a second too because it's about quad fins is the thing about multi-fins is they allow you whether it's a a tri or a quad is they allow you to ride a wider tail and control it wider tails are faster that's the thing. Like everybody talks about, oh yeah, like quad fins. They make when the quad fin is not the active ingredient. It's the f- they're just giving you control of a wide tail. The wide tails. The, the wide tails ingredient. the active ingredient. Right. And and so it's all drag. So the multi fin boards, like the classic thruster, the way that they're set, the way that they're foiled, actually incur drag. But what it does is it gives a, a, a good enough surfer the ability to have this kind of like built in claw like effect up the face. You go up and what do you do there? You go up to the top of the wave, you reset gravity. It's a gravity-fed sport. You come back down, you go back up. It's like dribbling a basketball. You start going faster and faster and faster. Multi-fin boards are great at that. So that drag that comes from the asymmetry of the fins and how they're towed in and the fact that they're in the water there's more things in the in the water flow slowing you down actually cancels that out in it for good surfers. If you put like a beginner on a regular Shortboard like a Kelly Slater board, and they just stand there. You just notice how fast they die, or if you remember when you were learning. Yeah. You just, until you get that magic key of being able to pump a board and reset gravity, they're actually going to slow down. Right. Like even Joel Tudor, if you put him on a modern, like high performance pro surfing, you know, shortboard tri fin and told him to trim the hell out of it, it's still going to just stop. Yeah. It's not going to go fast unless you pump it.
0: free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment that is a harsh lesson in business.
1: Sports is and not as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I
0: didn't want to do another stomp you out speech.
1: It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal.
0: Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Um, so you bring it back to the big wave thing. You've used a number of examples of things that have already been done that were successful in the past that we've gotten away from. I'm curious if there's some brand new design implement that would change the game.
1: No, there's there's nothing because once again, it's to, if we if people are paddling into those waves at you know Peahi and, and other places where there's a lot of wind, is the primary thing, the number one prime directive is catching the wave. You you just otherwise you're not doing anything. You have to catch the wave, and then when you're on the wave, you have to you have to be able to have some sort of control. If we're talking 25, 30 foot, sir. So what can you do? You can reduce the drag on the board so that you can get away with uh, a bigger board. Because obviously there's none of those control problems on a 5'8 toe board, right? No. no. So maybe, maybe uh, you know, like golf ball dimples, like the old phaser bottoms, but done in another way. Anything you can do just to reduce that drag so that you can, the board can hit those speeds, but you still got to paddle into the, that's another thing, I think a lot of the, the guys that are commercial big wave surfers, maybe they haven't uh, grown up doing paddleboard races, yeah. and, or they haven't, they're not comfortable on big boards, like say, you know, like my friends in Makaha or something, or lifeguards that you see on Oahu, uh, comfortable with boards up to 13 feet or more, 16 yeah. feet. And that comfort with those big boards is really going to come into play when the, it's the day. You know, it's dirt tog and you've got to go out and it's 30 feet. And if you haven't spent a lot of time on a board that's over 12 feet, it's going to be a liability.
0: Yeah. Are you building a lot of big wave boards?
1: Not, not really. It, uh, when I moved to Hawaii, that's kind of what my forte was here in California. and then. It just it just kind of vanished. I think a lot of people went away from big guns for a while with the toe surfing, or then having the longboard back. Yeah. And uh, you know that's kind of like what I really. I was more of a gunsmith. You know, like I wanted to do like what Pat Rossin and Brewer did and work on guns. And I was hunting some big game around the central coast at that time, and I needed it for my own equipment. So it it was everything that I was shaping is informed by my own experience of going out to these big bombies uh, pretty much alone usually and, and trying to catch waves that I thought were pretty much uncatchable. You know, they were problematic. Yeah. Are you still um, chasing that experience? No, not really. Ever Since, after living in Makaha, it's kind of hard to get excited about that. Really? Yeah. I would think it, Central Cal has... It is, but it's, I lived, like, Macaw Point was my front yard, and it was like to me, for my kind of surfing, being a down surfer, it's like the best kind of...
0: Yeah.
1: It, it's hard to go back to just big, cool. sloppy, like, uh, boil-infested... I, yeah. I, yeah. I'm And I'm doing other stuff. I'm out in the miles offshore of my canoes and doing downwind runs, and, and I just keep moving out offshore, further away from everything.
0: Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> um, you ever think about going back to Makaha?
1: Like, um, living back there? No, no, it's, uh, you know, Hawaii's changed, this area's changed, and I think you just, you just got to keep moving. You just got to keep, keep, I don't know. It seems like Tom Blake ended up back in the, he went into the desert in Wisconsin. It just seems like as surfers have this natural path, especially ones that are lifelong, where they end up in some pretty weird, they seem to transcend surfing itself. And then, you know, like Tom Morey said, everything is surfing. If you're a surfer, a lifelong surfer, have any real experience or you're seasoned, then everything you do in life, you approach as you're looking for riptides to get out. You're looking for channels. You're looking for the morning glass off, the evening glass off, with whether it's with traffic, work, jobs, relationships, You're always looking for the easy way out.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah,
1: it, it's where true. did he say that? When did he say that? Oh, Tom. Oh, ages ago. Uh, he's had so many wonderful interviews, and some of those things just ring true through the decades. Uh,
0: I mean, I'm finding that one to resonate particularly because.
1: I spend less and less time... He said conversation is surfing. It's like I just did. I cut you off. (laughs) He said people talk. Did you just snake me, bro? He Um, said that.
0: So, no, but I have felt like I surf less and less. I'm embarrassed to even say it, you know, but I do because, of course, real-world life obligations take over, but I've, as the years have gone by, I actually feel less guilt about it than I did maybe in my late 20s because... Of what Maury said is recording this podcast right now is actually a version of surfing for me. This is actually satiating part of my desire to surf.
1: And it, I know it's not the well. Fis- the culture of it and the history is just as important as the act. Is know? it? Well, of course. I think it's important. Is it just as important? I think it is. I think that we don't see it now, but af- before this, the big commercial boom with pro surfing and in the '80s and the certain sur- you know multi you know billion dollar surfwear companies. Surfing at a point like in the '70s, when I was just coming of age in it, it had a very real chance at being a viable subculture. You know, something that was like, "Hey, look at this! This is like we're the first like postmodern Native Americans. We're, we've turned our back, we've rejected these things, and now look where we're living. We're living with uh, like subtly influenced and, and aware of all, seasons, yeah. of tidal rhythms, of." All these fluctuations of nature that haven't been done by people since they lived closer to the land here. Surfers were like the first people, and they were living, they founded the health food movement, you know, and uh, the way that we dress, the whole, every, all these people around us that want to live here and on the coast, it, it was, you know, the surfing culture or subculture that made that attractive and made it viable. But is that to say that it didn't become a subculture, a viable subculture? No, t- but now it's just turned into this big, you know, bloated, narcissistic kind of there's there's wonderful people within it and brilliant and talented people within it, but by and large it's 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 kind of turned into the ultimate Instagram sport, you know. It's a big look at me sport. But it gives you the freedom to discard that and go and reject it and go off into the wilderness and, and get your own surfing experience. There's nobody forcing you right into a re education camp or anything.
0: Yeah, I mean, I question. I'm open to hear uh, or to accept what you just said, but I also question whether or not that's entirely true, or if it's
1: just some people's experience of it. I don't. I think what you said earlier about not feeling guilty about surfing less as you get older, but you know, a a Jedi Knight as he gets more powerful fights less, Hmm. right? Just being a Jedi, and then sometimes eventually you just completely, you know, uh, evolve away from that. You kind of. You know, like I've seen, like someone like Wayne Lynch who kind of transcends surfing and goes into sailing, and he's actually—you don't need to Phil Edwards and Greg Noll—they don't need to surf. They're still surfers. They're still making boards. They're still part of our culture.
0: That completely contradicts what you said about surfer shapers being the pinnacle expression of shapers, though. You know, like you still need to be yeah,
1: connected to the ocean. They're doing it with the way that they got into it from the beginning, though, which is boats. All surfboards were before, you know, that kind of like Simmons or the planing hole and then their flat bottoms like in the shortboard era was always informed by boats and canoes so those guys are all they're as into boats and things as as we're into surfing hmm. and they just return to that
0: so talking about the history and the thing that we're doing now being equally important to the actual time in the water
1: I'm not saying about time in the water I'm talking about the like what people see as performance being okay. the be all and end all like the actual act of surfing is important but it's the icing on the cake it's it's what at the end of it when you get to be older, what has that taught you? Has it made you a better person? Has it made you be, you know, more almost Japanese in your appreciation of nature and open spaces? Has it led you to literature and poetry, or like I mean, is it or are you just going to be a spicoli? Right.
0: So I need to define the term more specifically. And for me, what that term is now—the act of surfing—isn't shredding a wave whereas when i was 18 years old that's all that it was to me i actually had zero respect for the being in the cold water and for the sun that was touching my skin you know and all that sort of stuff it was just i need to improve and surf better than i did last session and once i wasn't able to achieve that goal anymore i think i went through a period of time of just depression i was just like crap man i'm blowing it i'm a kook and i've grown past that to where now i actually don't really even need to ride a wave i just need to get in the water feel the cold water that sort of thing that's my surf experience so um but i do need to get in the water of course the ocean
1: is what it's all about but but don't don't you think that you can transcend that and go what about the, the hawaiian model where you just constantly move offshore just keep moving out into the open ocean and you take those skills and what about all the guys you know the Cabells and the Miniosas and whatnot that sailed at Tahiti and uh, or or the ultimate model is the the pre-contact Hawaiians that sailed throughout all the you know the constellations of all those islands by star and the front of the seas and birds and everything like they they wouldn't do that if they were just sitting in the shore break riding Merrick's you
0: know <laughs> <laughs> man way to throw Merrick under the bus <laughs> Um, so the ultimate expression might be the Buddhist monk who's just meditating on it well, and I, being there in his mind's eye. You I, know what I mean?
1: Yeah, but I, yeah, I think a good corollary of that would be that ultimately surfing, if you distill it down to over a whole lifetime, if you want to take the Jedi Knight you know, model, is that it's just about reading water. That's what it's all about. it's all about reading water so so to prove that how fundamentally it changes you being a surfer whether you're been surfing two years or 40 years is every seascape painting you see or every wave you see in the back of a movie you'll never ever again be able to look at the ocean and not mentally ride the wave Hmm. you make sense out of it we'll never be like all the non-surfers that look at a stormy sea or a seascape or a wave breaking in the back of a film and be confused by it it's chaos to them it doesn't make sense it's scary to us there's even in the wildest storm there's patterns we can read the water and it it makes sense to us yeah on on a macro and micro level and so that changes us as people and it should change you it changes how you deal with life and traffic patterns and i just find it it my whole life is built on those principles that once you learn to read something as complex as the ocean especially at its most dynamic interface in the impact zone is that you're able to process information and make judgments in other walks in other like more terrestrial parts of your life a totally like a jedi hmm. compared to the average person and so isn't that it's interesting is just as important as like how many times you went off the lip last week you know more important well, in the long run, not when you're a kid. When you're a kid, have at it, go out and yeah, tail yeah. and everything. But but at some point, like Sam Reed, who was Duke friend and biographer, as he said, a great quote is, "A mature man cannot remain a hot dogger." You know, at some point, you're going to have to mature, grow up, and you know, seeing like sixty year olds on sh- you know shortboards, like trying to like do aerials or yeah, their tongues hanging out of their mouth while they're trying to rip, it's kind of pathetic. Oh yeah, it's interesting. Um being able to process
0: kind of water movement and applying that to your terrestrial life. I hadn't ever thought of that. And I do think of the surf experience, my surf experience as being therapeutic. And I just thought it's like, Oh no, being one with nature is what's the therapeutic part. And that allows me to be a better, um, uh, you know, partner in a romantic relationship or a better son and a better employee to my employers, all that sort of thing. But I think actually you're right. Maybe it is part therapy, but it is also part just being able to
1: process. Yeah, maybe it's like like to paraphrase John Steinbeck, who said about travel, what you could say about uh, you know like big wave surfing or the ocean is. He said that the surest way to you know bring on like ruination is to think you can control it. He said it's like it was, it was like marriage. He said travel was like marriage. The surest way to like bring on ruination is to think you can control it. So anybody that comes out and thinks they can control the ocean and a big surf is not going to get very far. Yeah. No, that's what Kook Slams is for. So.
0: <laughs> you love Kook Slams too? Oh,
1: yeah, I love <laughs> it's it. The it's the best. Dude. It's great. Yeah. They had the best one a
0: day or two ago where a guy burns another guy yeah. and then headlock. One guy headlocks the other guy. They both end up on one board together and actually riding it for quite a ways. Did you see that one? Yeah, I did. It was did amazing. That. Yeah,
1: it's just, it's so great to see. That it's, uh, I mean, it kind of brings back the fun of surfing too. Like you it used is, to see yeah. in the old Bruce Brown films of guys surfing Brook Street and just doing all these crazy things and just eating it on slippery deck boards and yeah. shore break. On you know, it's 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 kind of like the what Instagram is made for.
0: I agree. For me, it brings back America's funniest videos from yeah. my childhood, where a guy steps on a rake and it smacks him in the face. Yeah. Only it's all surfing, which yeah. is even better. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um. So. You, one of the uh, ways that you experience surf in your world is by writing about it. Obviously, um, documenting it from kind of a historian standpoint. I had a listener email me the other day asking why nobody can successfully write surf fiction. Not for film, not for. Oh, for literature that's the easiest question in the world oh please enlighten me I'm so curious well for one
1: well well, I've written a lot of surf fiction but it's not it's uh, a lot of it was a humor serial I did for Surfer you know Surfer right Um, but I've gone over this with a number of people including Steve Hawk and about why Hollywood movies fail is they everybody writing fiction about surfing whether it's for a screenplay or you know actual you know literature is they it's not about surfing you don't want it to be about surf. The act of surfing. What you need is great characters in a story, and oh, by the way, they happen to surf. You know, like like for example, you look at uh, like Blue Crush. You know, boilerplate story, boiler cardboard characters. You but if you took the film from like 1981, Breaking Away, if you'd seen it, it's about these small town guys, you know, back in the Midwest, one is like wants to be a bike. A, a, on Italian bike racer, coming-of-age story, complex relationship with parents. Uh, it's funny, but it's you take that those characters and you put them in a movie like Blue Crush, it would kill it. Mm. It would be a great film. That it, it's like to my mind, the only surf movie that ever got it right was Apocalypse Now. Right, that little you know film within a film there. Especially if you see the expanded version. It's yeah. because it's about the people and. It's Like I said, just by the way, they happen to surf. Surfing. It's not about surfing. And you, they get the cart before the horse. It's a really good
0: point. A super obvious point, actually. It's an obvious point. Yeah. It's very obvious. And I never thought about it. Because as you were making that argument, I started thinking, well, what are some of my favorite films? Yeah. Let's say Pulp Fiction. So is it about um, uh, drug users and uh, Hitmen? No, it's not. It's well, about these people who happen to be
1: doing drugs and be hitmen. But the dialogue, too. And also the fact sure. that Tarantino is robbed blind to every other film. He's, I mean, he's just like Spielberg and Lucas with Raiders of the Lost Ark. All he's, you know, when, when they came out with Raiders of the Lost Ark, everybody said, well, that's been, you know, this isn't anything new. And, they, and Lucas just said, like deadpan to the world, he said, we didn't say we were the first to do it. We just did it better than anybody else. <laughs> And so there yeah. you go. That's your you know, your film. It's and like it's been done before, but somebody take it to the next level. And I'm it's fine cool. with that. And
0: Tarantino will be the first to admit it. He's a totally. huge film buff. Yeah, He's a film Yeah, geek, Of course.
1: Yeah. So, so so it's the dialogue and if you if you make people if you have characters that are compelling, it doesn't matter whether they're ice climbing or exactly. fishing in the deadliest catch of or course. they're looking for the lost arc. It doesn't matter. As long if they, but the, the story has to be good. Of course. And the characters have to be good. And they all have to talk differently to avail. You know, yeah. Um, are you a film buff? I'm the biggest film buff in the world. I know, probably know more about film and film history than I do about surfing or anything.
0: How so. have we never had this conversation? I,
1: it doesn't come up. I guess film geeks are kind of are used to having people sidle away from us when we I start I guess so, man. More.
0: I wouldn't consider myself a buff, but I'm a fan for sure. What are... Like, I mean, this isn't surf related but what are a couple of your hit what's on your hit list
1: well I I love everything I mean I yeah. like every kind of film from like things back in the silent era the classic but I gotta say that I a couple years ago George Miller just rocked my world with Fury Road it was like that to me is the most perfect movie ever made really oh yeah Mad Max Mad Max Fury Road because he put It's what movies are all about the first motion pictures were trains speeding at things or bullets coming up. it was about motion yeah and he put it in there and made a movie's motion put the motion back in motion pictures and the story the char- every the yeah. writing i can't even as a writer i look at that there was not a word out of place yeah. and obviously there weren't many words in the, in the story too sure. but i was never really that i loved the original films because of the they were so kinetic and they were they were kind of camp, and I guess people would say anti-authoritarianism, But and Mel Gibson was good, but I didn't really get into the, the character, but I thought Tom Hardy in the new one, it really made a character come alive and realize this is like a really damaged person, you know, mm-hmm. and in his whole his whole film, he's fighting, you know, he's a man apart instead of a part of, mm. apart from rather than a part of, and, and I love every minute in that film there was something original
0: i'll rewatch it um, i watched it once and i loved it but everybody's spoken
1: this way about it yeah. and so i feel like i need to give it another as a historian as somebody that's seen like all the you know most of the great films sure. i can tell you it is a, it's a you know it's a perfect movie okay and it's more than what it's more than this action thing george miller just it's a masterpiece okay yeah.
0: i'll rewatch it can i give you two of my favorites sure, sure. in like maybe the last decade and hear your commentary on it um Terrence Malick's Tree of Life? Yeah. Didn't see that, no. Okay. Do you like Terrence Malick?
1: Not particularly. No, really? No. Oh, I'm more no. of a, the, like, John Sturges, John Ford, Okay. classic, like, just tell the story.
0: Okay. You know? I feel like he's telling a story of a grander scope. Like, Tree of Life literally is the story of life. Yeah, like, that's
1: I, how you would sum it up. what I them. saw of it, it kind of reminded me of, like, Koyaanisqatsi, but more of a, you know, that, like, it's yeah. just... It's kind of you know, like Led Zeppelin lyrics or something. He just kind of it's how bit. they sound rather than.
0: It, well, that's yeah. the thing. It's how it
1: looks yeah. more
0: than it is about a, a like a narrative, like a dialogue-driven narrative. But he's a visual storyteller, and it's um, it's a compelling story, and he does a successful job telling it kind of in an abstract fashion. So that I, I really, really loved, and it's something. What I love about it is I can I just re-watch it, and it works on a very uh, cursory level, but the more I watch it, the more I get out of it. And the other film that I would say fits that same billing is um, Charlie Kaufman Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, New York. Yeah. Did you ever see that? No, I
1: haven't seen it. Ebert raved about it and never got around to seeing it, but I've heard... It was, it's compelling. Yeah, it was, it was kind of like, from what I read of the reviews... And I read everything I can about every film, just to kind of do my homework. And it was kind of did for film what James Joyce did with Ulysses. You know, it mm-hmm. breaks through into some other kind of stream of consciousness or way of telling you know, story. So I definitely would be into read and you know, seeing that. You
0: know. Yeah, I would recommend it. I mean, it, it's depressing, but I love it.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, let's talk surf film. Then, are you a fan of surf film?
1: Oh, yeah, growing up, I don't see any modern ones, but... Uh, Why not? I, I think I, it lost me kind of during the Momentum era when it just went to be, like, single maneuver yeah. shots. I kind of... Uh, you know, I like more of the classic I mean, Endless Summer, Free Ride, Morning of the Earth. Like that. It I just doesn't... It's just not compelling to me now to see modern surf films.
0: I agree with you, but here's...
1: I'm not okay with that. Like...
0: I, I agree with you. Like, I grew up being a huge fan of surf film as a medium. And the fact that I'm not watching it anymore, I don't think is reflective of, you know, my attention span or my interest level or anything. I think it's reflective that the filmmakers are failing us. And so I want to critique it on this podcast and have this continual dialogue to kind of encourage those filmmakers to elevate the platform for us. So... Why aren't you watching it, and where are they falling short, and where can they improve their craft?
1: Yeah, if that's, if that's what you're doing, if I was writing about it, or if it was something that I was going to, yeah, you have to know your, your field or your medium, but it just, I, you know, I don't. I don't have to. It doesn't do, have oh, anything to do with I, my surfboards or anything.
0: One of the times we connected, though, was with, you were with Andrew Kidman, yeah. and I interviewed him for this. Um, He's a filmmaker. Yeah, but you his films his are, are more like, of my... Sen-
1: he, he, I helped reintroduce him to Morning of the Earth back in, you know, 30-some years ago. And and so his films naturally are more aligned to my own sensibilities. So okay. If, uh, yeah, when I watch a film, I want to see how beautiful surfing is, and I want to be put in that trance, and um, I don't make any bones about it. I don't say... That, I mean, if I was a kid, I'd want to be seeing the... The hard rock films and what's going on today, but I'm not. I, that was I had my era of seeing that kind of stuff when surf films are you know, more like pornographic and it was more about just getting excited to get out and go surf crappy river jetties in the morning or something. Yeah, <laughs> and I just don't don't. I'm not in that place. Does feature
0: length surf films still have a place in modern surf culture?
1: Well, I think one of the important things was before. DHS and in the way that, of course, films are now with the with the interweb, was the it was a right, like a tribal right where everybody went to a Vets Hall or a theater and in, in in their wherever they lived, whether it was California or back east, and they got together and it was a communal, almost religious, religious experience to sit in a thing and see that first wave come up and everybody hooting. That was exciting to be part of it. That's when you realized that surfing could be like a religion because people were in these cathedrals and. All of a sudden, all the petty bickering and jealousies and localism and who was on what side of the tracks, it all just kind of bled away when you saw that first pipeline wave come on. And everybody I don't think people get to do that anymore, unless there's revivals. And it seems like it's too cool to hoot. So, Yeah. So
0: then, does the three-minute edit replace it, or does the 15-second Instagram clip replace it?
1: Well, only as like a news cycle, I yeah. guess, of what, what's going on in surfing. I, yeah. uh, it, it's... I think it's great that it's there for people because it makes things a lot more democratic. You can see a lot more, uh, you know, of the tapestry of surfing than what we used to be force-fed in the days. You right. know, like, in the old days, it was, like, a certain amount of guys, uh, filmmakers that could go around the world and afford to make a film, and then a couple key photographers that worked for, you know, surfer surfing that were, you, you, everything that you saw, especially in the 80s and on the 90s, was just, you know, kind of a very tunnel vision look at what was going on in surfing for the average person unless you knew otherwise or you knew other people
0: I guess um, as a fan of the medium feature length surf film I want more I want better versions of it like I want the attention to detail put into surf film that was put into Malick's Tree of Life and that sort of thing where the guy I'm sure labored over every camera angle and shot in pre-production, then shot it with a tremendous amount of attention to detail, then spent four years in post-production editing it. Like, literally edit, it edited out characters that were written into the script. Because it, So, I want that level of craftsmanship put in. However, I acknowledge that if Clay Marzo does an insane blowtail on Maui today, and Jay Davies gets barreled at the box today i can see both those things on instagram tonight and yeah. feature-length surf film doesn't allow that doesn't allow me to do that you know like that instantaneous well, so
1: that's then what you're saying is what you have to you have to figure out what you're after with the immediacy or like i said the news quality of that the news cycle of, of what's going on and a proper documentary like i would go see a, a film about even the last surfers in the world on the pro tour that I'd be interested in, if Werner Herzog made it, <laughs> or something yeah. like that, why, why can't he be making these films? Yeah, you know, like why can't he should be? Yeah, some of his. Have you seen some of his documentaries? I've yeah. I've told Andrew Kibben a number of times. Mm-hmm. I have given a list of documentaries to see if you want to be a filmmaker that you should be looking at some of these films as a way to, you know, as a foundation. And it, it's surely possible I mean, if you look at. Oh, man, there's so, it's just... I mean, I actually think for surfing, the best way to do it would be like Christopher Guest or something. <laughs> yeah. Be doing like a best-in-show mockumentary about a year on the tour. That'd be, amazing. Wouldn't that be great? Dude, that
0: would be amazing.
1: But you're right. The
0: Herzog model, like... Um, Grizzly Man, right? Like, oh, there's, not, there's, there's not a lot of production value that went into that. It's just a super compelling character and found footage with a little bit of um, interviews with yeah. people modern day. But surfing has fascinating characters. They have characters that I would argue might be as interesting as the Grizzly Man dude. And well,
1: I think the Grizzly Man was about surfing. That, they, that movie nailed California localism perfectly. What that guy was doing up there, these are my bears, only I understand them. Nobody else—not the Forest Service or the game people. No one else. Only I understand them. Only I have the relationship with this break right. or these bears. Fascinating. It's exactly like those trogs that you see guarding, jealously guarding a spot. And a lot of it is based on this—this this insane, like, self-absorbed, like, uh, presentiment that they understand or love that spot more than someone else. Right. That's totally different. And in Hawaii, the localism is about preserving hierarchy, largely, and it's not about like arguing that. Everybody agrees that you can love this break. Everybody look at how beautiful it is. The wines be the first say it's beautiful, it's the best place. This that they don't they don't contest if someone else can come in there and say, Oh, it's beautiful here. But the California kind of localism is always that kind of unique, impotent thing that nobody else understands it or can love this place like me. I have a relationship with it. Everybody else are interlopers and infidels. Yeah. And that movie, like you said, the Grizzly men nailed it. That's fascinating. Yeah. And that dude was Spicoli, by the oh. way.
0: <laughs> so crazy. Dude was insane. Um, well, let's talk about uh, writing, like the surf, the surf space of writing and uh, magazines and all that. What's the state of surf magazines for you right now? How do you view it? Don't do you read it. anything?
1: I, I probably, like like I had the my character in the Everybody Surf series, the old legend, say I, my consumption of surf media is probably equal to like you know, Pope Paul or something. Really? <laughs> or don't, just, I don't need it for my job. Hmm. I build surfboards based on what, you know, proven design components and what my customers bring to me. And a lot of that stuff s- seeps in through osmosis from from their experiences. And I'm really there to listen to their experiences, not so much mine. or.
0: But it, whether it applies to your job or not, didn't you used to read it for entertainment value?
1: Uh, yeah, when I was younger, when I was a competitive surfer. I, my relationship with the ocean just is on another level than what I can get from
0: it. You don't get any entertainment out of no, it? It's
1: like when I, I tell people, when, like when I lived in Macaw, when, I just said, when your surfing life is better than anything you can get in the surf media or the magazines, why read it?
0: Yeah. I don't know, to see what else is going on uh, in other places in the world or outside of oh, your experience? I mean, experience? see what
1: else is going on uh, according to what the strictures and boundaries of the advertisers Dictate to the magazine Okay,
0: so then that's the problem yeah. So you're scrolling Instagram still
1: uh, No, I, I, I don't it's, it's a great thing I only have it just as a, as, as a gallery To put surfboards on For people to look at And I, I just don't I don't like social media Okay I, I'd rather pick up a book and read I'd rather go out and paddle You know, get me out in the ocean I just don't It's great, it's wonderful But it's not for me What was the last thing you wrote For a magazine? Uh, I pretty much worked for the journal Surfer's journal
0: Right, so you read yeah. Surfer's journal though
1: uh, no, I you don't. don't read it. <laughs> uh, what was the last thing you wrote for them? I did a story recently that probably just came out a couple months ago, and it was a uh, uh, kind of a think piece on the history of performance in surfing, but that positing that basically all the things that we think we know about those you know thousand or so years in Hawaii are just bullshit. Really? Yeah. That they were just riding straight off on clunky boards and waiting for Robbie Clark to show up, you know, with a foam board or something.
0: That's the accurate, well, version of it.
1: Well, no, that's just the—that's kind of like the boilerplate version of surfing history. Is okay. That performance started with, with you know, uh, you know California influence and modern boards, and, and it's like having lived there uh, and seen what what how Hawaiians the relationships with the ocean and stuff is. I, at a place like Makaha, which has an unbroken chain back a thousand years of surfing and ocean skills, you just. Hawaiians weren't just sitting around for hundreds of years or a thousand years just doing nothing. They were There was the boards and the canoes that they had, there was there was performance, and you can see it today with the Alaya board, and what people are doing, what's possible. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think that there was a lot more going on in surfing, it was a lot more sophisticated than what people think of when they kind of go in and look at that you know, classically rigid Stations of the Cross from, through the eras. Is
0: there evidence to support it?
1: You, I've seen the surfboards. I went into the Bishop Museum with Rel and actually saw those those old boards with the parabolic rocker. And, the, and uh, when you're when you have a huge poetry tree and you're chasing the, the design in your mind's eye with you know blocks of pumice and adzes and stone adzes and everything like that, why would they go to those those contours unless they were angling? And that was the, the whole argument that I made was that they were angling and going fast they weren't just riding straight in mm-hmm. uh, the boards were built for it and uh, that the, uh, the complexity and how it was interwoven in their culture and, and you know, religion and all the other spirituality and everything was, is a lot deeper and I think that the like the, Hokulea, the Polynesian Voyaging Society uh, like what they just did they've been doing since 1976 proves it because it's the same thing
0: Those designs wouldn't have
1: just happened out of happenstance. Well, for a long time, the classic, you know, the Howley Professor bearded guys were saying, oh, the Polynesians could never get around the Pacific. They were just blown around like dandelion spores. And now, of course, we know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that they were navigating back and forth with their own forms of celestial navigation and that they made these incredible voyages, of which there's not much written, you know, no written record, but they were doing it back and forth. And ultimately culminating in Hawaii, where they found trees big enough to make surfboards right. that that were you know more than just riding straight off in the lagoons and it's you know it 's a huge story I think the the model of what the Hokulea and the whole Polynesian voyaging society has achieved is app- applicable to surfing that, that I think it proves the same thing that that just as Hawaiians were not or Polynesians were not just blown by chance around the Pacific to just land like. You know, geckos on a log somewhere and, and prosper and colonize a place. So too with surfing, not just a millennia of going straight off in the right. <laughs> on big wooden boards. Sure, I've seen the evidence myself. Yeah. Um. What
0: What do you want to write about that you haven't written about, or what would you, given unlimited kind of resource and also not necessarily thinking about where it might be published ultimately? What story do you want to write?
1: Well, fiction, or just either way. Well, I it would be I like to write things other than surfing about surfing. It's it's been done. Um, yeah, I it, it's nothing. Nothing really jumps to mind. It's hard to come up with things uh, if if I'm going to do a story for the Surfers Journal. They're a really writer-friendly magazine, and they're bent over backwards to make things happen, especially with easing their, like, restrictions on illustrations. Because everything, you come up with a great idea, and then they just go, oh, well, how do you illustrate it? Right. And, but they've always been really good. But it's hard to come up with things that haven't been, that get me excited enough to do it, because I want to do something fairly original. I want to do something that hasn't been, uh, you know, flogged to death. Right.
0: Do you visit any surf websites
1: no. Not at all. No. And like I said, it's not because I'm a Luddite. It just doesn't interest me. I'm, trying to, I'm out trying to learn other things. I hear you. you know, that bandwidth is required for, you know, we're in a very perilous time of our history, and for many, many, many years I've been reading about the history of this last century and trying to see when we're going to be on the Fury Road. Yeah. You know? Hopefully it's the Fury Road, not the road, because I'd rather be, you know, have those cars than be pushing a a shopping cart around an Ashfield wasteland, you know, like gnawing on a a femur or something, you know.
0: Uh, What does the prospect look like to you, though?
1: Uh, Well, it just doesn't seem, it doesn't seem sustainable. The current model. Current, yeah. Current level of consumption and population and and just ignorance, and uh, I feel like we're in a period where it's, we're kind of, in like about 1937 or 38, in the Spanish Civil War. Syria being a perfect example of this proxy war and all it... I mean, Neville Shute, the writer that did On the Beach, he had it nailed. Everybody, I, I, it's funny, Neville Shute was an English guy it was an aviation uh, engineer and he wrote novels in his spare time and they, they're underrated now but some of his books are really, really good especially On the Beach which used to be a classic and actually kind of helped start the whole... Uh, anti-nuclear movement and it definitely had a huge um, uh, importance with the psyche of like every Australian of a certain age that I ever met because the story took place in Australia where they're down there mining their own business when this nuclear cloud after a war, enormous like global nuclear war obliterated everything and this la- this cloud's just coming closer and closer to them down in Melbourne and they, are, they know they're going to die and they just have their suicide pills ready and I think Australia has done an inordinate share of spilling their blood for all these other belligerents causes, incredible warrior nation you know, like the New Zealands, like the Canadians like the Maoris, nobody knows about it because it's always John Wayne, right, storming the beach in Normandy, but at, I'm starting to see Australians that don't know what the, on the beach was mm. and how much of an impact it, it had it's, it's well worth reading, but one of the things that Shoot wrote about was this miscommunication and mistaken identities for things that the war started with there was, like, Egyptian jets bombing Israel, but they had Russian markings, and then somebody blew it, and then by all it took was a few steps of retaliation, and then nobody knew who was making the decisions anymore, and then China got into it. and I mean, this was a novel that came out, like, in the early yeah. 60s. It's, it's, it's still pretty prescient.
0: um do you read any other surf writers
1: uh, no I don't yeah but I because I, surf writing to me is just I I wince when I even hear that it's just be a writer it's I, like you're yeah, a writer I know I know I know I
0: was apprehensive to even say it I've always felt that way with like surf journalism yeah you what know, is I, it because there's no journalism. there's no no such one's thing. Telling the truth of course.
1: it's not it's just yeah you know, it's we're all a bunch of we're all writing glorified ad copy for our dark yes. overlords. You know, it,
0: Sure. <laughs> I agree. Well, so all of those questions, whether you click on surf magazines or read writing, for me, to be honest, the most informative information that I get in the surf world nowadays exists in the comments section on surf websites, on Stab Magazine's website, on Beach Grit's website, in the Surfer Magazine forum, where it's just Joe Schmo making a comment about um, who won what contest or whatever might or whatever new surf edit is out. And I found that to be like a much more accurate gauge on the zeitgeist than anything else.
1: Yeah, because back in the 70s at Surfer Magazine, they had a thing called Photos from the Readers. I think they even had it in the 60s. It was, it was kind of the equivalent of that where there was this thing where people that weren't Jeff Hornbaker or Aaron Chang or... Or you know, Larry Moore could send in pictures, and they and it kind of gave you that real blue collar, rootsy, mm-hmm. grassroots thing about what was that uh, kind of actually going on in surfing because the waves could be less than perfect. And the surfer might not be a world beater or anything, but I always liked that. So it's probably what's, yeah, what's going on. I think
0: that's a lot of it, but then I there's an additional element which is I think there's a lot of people that actually work in the surf industry that are commenting on there too under aliases, saying things that they wouldn't be able to say from their
1: paid employer yeah like nick, see, nick carroll's on there steve yeah, she's already there, talking like. about something that's a swamp i wouldn't you know, need an airboat to navigate <laughs> you know it's like i don't even want to go into that i don't have time i'm reading and it's not that i have anything against it's you just come roll in the mud with me i've man. already it's done fun. it i've already done it i was i mean i the magazines were i lived for them i used to fight my brother like bloody nose to try to get the issue of my, the surfer surfing when it came to the, yeah, yeah. the post box but I just I just move on. It's yeah. not it's not. I don't disdain it. It's just no interest to me. And I just say, good for you guys. Yeah. You can have your youth and your childhood and get off on it. i have just to to improve and to learn other things as a surfer. I have to go outside of my comfort zone in that surfing bubble or the industry or what Joe Blow said about the ASP Pro or whatever. I just right. I, and and then there's another thing too is that Ray Bradbury always said he never read in his field because if he came ac- you know, if he came across something really good he. He would, uh, f- you know, feel like he might be, you know, kind of compelled to steal it, or he would feel bad that he didn't do something better like or something. I mean, he never read science fiction. Fascinating. Yeah,
0: I did not know that. Yeah, and I
1: just feel as a writer, and this is the the truth: is I would much rather, if I'm going to write something, I think the uh, uh, the work's going to come out better if I don't consume any surf media i think it's just going to be a lot freer and un- unrestricted and unconstrained by anything it's it's it might even be more original if i'm not just referencing everything else that's out there and i i seem like i enjoy writing a lot more not having read any magazines in, in a long time
0: um i agree with you like i, I agree with you philosophically, but I can't strip myself away from it either. I don't expect you, know you
1: I mean? to. It's not, it's not a credo. I'm not trying to. No, I know. No. It's like know. single <laughs> fins. I just make them. I don't try to ram them down people's throats or anything. Are you riding them too?
0: Yeah, I ride everything. You, well, you, uh, you talked about your experience a little bit, getting farther and farther away from shore. What is your current surf experience?
1: Well, the the most rewarding thing I've ever done is getting involved in these, uh, for a number of years, with these super lightweight um Twenty-one and a half foot. They're one-man outrigger canoes. They kind okay. of they started in like the lagoons of Tahiti, but they were perfected in the 80s and 90s. And now in Hawaii, it's like a, it's almost like a state sport, like like the six-man. And uh, these are super light, 20-pound one-man canoes that that have the amar, the outrigger on it. And you uh, in Hawaii, especially, you surf downwind on. It. Okay. So there's this whole cult of downwind guys that are bump riders, and there's races like the Molokai Channel, which is from Molokai to Oahu, and all these other downwind runs that they do, and there's this whole culture about these really, really fast, responsive boats that you go out, people wouldn't even know you're out there, you're out there miles and miles out there, and you're just surfing the whole way, and you're reading the ocean uh, in a way that, like Wayne Lynch talked about sailing, he just said it, when you're sailing, you're just using parts of your brain you no longer use in surfing. Okay. Because we've all gotten too, maybe too good or too experienced. Like, it's easy. You go out, you just sit there, you hardly break a sweat, the wave comes to you go. But when you're out there in that real complex interface, you have to, like, I've had to use everything that I ever did, like running track and race, every kind of racing I've ever done, surfing, prone paddling, sailing, even flying a bit, it, and, and all the canoe paddling. You have All those things have to come, and you're reading water in front of you It's like a pinball game that's just going too fast for you and after an hour or so you actually get what I call bump drunk where you just your brain can't process it anymore and you start to just get dizzy. Mm. That's how complex it is. So when you come back to surfing, paddling out in the shore break at like Pismo Beach on a shortboard, it's so slow. Mm. (laughs) It's so boring compared to um so but it, it spices up your surfing experience because it keeps you fit and for our area around here where we on the central coast, we have probably some of the best downwind runs in the world are really winds is like sideways northwest winds those are perfect for downwind runs so how many miles offshore are you oh it depends on the run but when we go from up north like in from pagers blancas down to cambria we're miles offshore and how and many miles is the run they, anywhere from 10 to 14 to 16 and you can keep tacking them on and go like there's runs that you could do if you stitch them together where you could go 40 you know, like a like a proper Molok- the Molokai Channel races you like 32 miles, so that's the gold standard. So that having learned to sail before I learned to surf, it's kind of like coming home to where I take everything that I ever learned in surfing and all those and water sports and ocean sports and living in Hawaii, and uh, you put it into that. And it's in in the, in the racing part of it, what's great is everybody kind of has the same boats. There's no excuse. Okay. There's no there's no judges. Just you and the clock. And what you, you're pitting what you know against the ocean and all these really complex things about the line you take and the tide gyres and the bottom contours and where you a surfer can kind of hug the coast and sneak in and catch a wave and maybe gap somebody by it's unreal it's like it's like a sailing race, but no judges hmm. and it's always windy and the best thing about it it's always room for more'd be five hundred guys out there, and it's like hey, hey right on it's like surfing really? used to be. Yeah. You see someone on a with a one man on your car, whether it's here or on, on Kauai or on Oahu, and you wave like you used to used to hear about guys with surfboards in the '50s in California. Huh. Plenty of room out there. In fact, the more, the merrier.
0: Are you building those boards? Or oh those no, no, bugs? they're
1: they're they're the company that uh, and I'd like to give a shout out to my favorite company in the world is uh, Kamanu Composites. That's the only one I know. I was yeah. going to mention yeah. them. Yeah, those but those guys. I figured- Luke, Ebslin, and, all, and, and uh, his former partner, Johnny Puakea and all the guys that work there, they're all owner enthusiasts. They're guys that went to UH, wanted to build the best canoes and paddle. They're all race at a high level. They, everything's built in Kailua. Nothing's in China. They, they build just beautiful, beautiful boats. Huge, huge waiting list for boats, but they just, are, they just have a great business model. And uh, Luke himself, Epsilon, is a a guy you might want to talk to. He's a wonderful writer, huge breadth of of, uh, depth of knowledge about Hawaii and running a small business there and paddling. And uh, they're just my favorite company in the world. I I visited the
0: factory uh, maybe like four or five years ago with a buddy, Grant, um, Mm -hmm. when I was out there. And then I feel like one of them, I don't know if it was Luke, messaged me because he listens to the podcast so they surf too I would assume oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Guy, in Hawaii everybody does everything sure <laughs> yeah, that makes sense that's
1: maybe why I'm the way I. if I had stayed here all these years I might just be in a different place but I think living in Hawaii you you learn from if you're fortunate enough to be able to, to participate in these things with Hawaiians you just learn these things and you come away with a totally different way of looking at your relationship with the ocean not to speak of just surfing
0: yeah know. right so why aren't you building those Those boats.
1: Well they're they're most of those boats they they do shape some of the prototypes by hand and then they make a mold, but most of it's all done on computers and uh, I don't have the knowledge. Oh, okay. Uh, I mean I I see things that I can recognize but I'm not. But that's one of the exciting things is the more that I get into paddling and the more that I apply surfing design to it. And and you kind of these these things are these like the the boat that I paddle is their Kamanu Composites has a boat called the Pueo which is wine for owl, and they it, they have a bunch of different models, but when you strap yourself in one of those things, it's like being in a fighter pilot, a little small Spitfire or a go-kart. You're low to the water. The slightest bit of power, they just go, and you just kick the rudder a little bit, and it's like flying. Like, I've hmm. flown gliders a few times, the sailplanes, and it's like flying a sailplane. And then That's you just awesome. catch a bump, and then you're going, you go from maybe six knots up to, like, 10, 12, 14 And then from that bump, you're looking and seeing where the next bump's forming, and then you just, whoop, whoop, a couple more paddles, and you hop into the next one. And so you start leapfrogging across the ocean, and next thing you know, 10 miles have gone by. And you're surfing every bit of it. You're not waiting in a crowd, popping kelp bulbs, you know, getting cut off. You're just as as good as you can read the ocean. That's as fast as you can move. uh, Fascinating. It's like the most unbelievable thing it's the culmination of every i just look at it as the culmination of everything i ever got into as in you know as a shore break yeah server <laughs>
0: that is absolutely fascinating and it's making me feel really um narrow-minded in terms of what my own personal surf experience well, it's is. what
1: you're exposed to i was fortunate enough to be exposed to that living in hawaii knowing a lot of great legendary watermen and all the lifeguards and uh to say nothing of, of, of Rel and her influence and, uh, and having doors open to participate in the things like with Brian Kailana and his family and the patience that they teach, you know, the newcomer, I learned a lot. And so I just figured you'd take it everywhere in the world with you. Yeah. You, know, you can never really look at the ocean the same way again once you've seen it through the eyes of, of Polynesians or Hawaiians.
0: Yeah.
1: You were just in Hawaii. Yeah, I just did a race.
0: I was going to ask why you were
1: there and... Yeah, my my former partner with C4 Waterman is one of the more experienced paddlers uh, in the world. I think he's been across the Molokai Channel and every kind of craft probably like 58 times. Who's that? Todd Bradley. Okay. And uh, so we had a chance to do a relay race, and uh, he's a a really good coach, so I'm trying to work on the mechanics of it. So it was good to go and do a race with him and have 32 miles and... uh, come in and uh, on the escort boat and hear what he was saying like you would tell the boat it's the son that was driving the boat what i was doing wrong and then i could go out on the next change and try to figure out how to get the the whole kinesiology right okay because being a surfer you just want to attack things and you just apply surf muscle and there's a but there's a like in, in paddling like less is more you okay. actually want to slow down and efficiency efficiency yeah there's this whole thing and i'd be out there just trying to paddling for a wave kind of just like with your arms. <laughs> right. Economy of motion. What, um, how'd you guys do? Uh, I think we got second in our division but uh, we, you know, we're just a bunch of old futs, and it was a slow, there wasn't much wind and, but it's still like the EV channel is like my, is my favorite place in the world is, I, I just get chicken skin thinking about it out there. What channel is that? It's the Molkai channel. Oh, It's okay. just what it, it It's so beautiful out there, and it can be so ugly. It's like one of the roughest channels in the world. Yeah. It has moments of just beauty, and then there's moments when you just never want to see it again. And The, the heat, and the you know, jellyfish, and sharks, and these contrary currents where you can just be... It'd be like being in a sand yeah. trap, swinging for an hour and never getting your ball out of this under the green and yes. just the island, Oahu's not getting closer so it definitely there's nothing I've ever done in surfing as physically as demanding as, as that hmm. nothing
0: it's been an eye-opening experience
1: All those or, or I mean like next conversation a, next time you see a one man on top of a car or yeah. a one man out in your canoe you'll kind of just look at it and go yeah what these guys are up to yeah
0: fascinating uh, listeners should know my beer is empty and yours is still like three quarters full well,
1: <laughs> it shows who is doing more talking. Valla how well, yeah.
0: Right on, dude. Uh, where can people find you?
1: Uh, at uh, Nautro.com.
0: nowtro Yeah. Are you still um, maintaining your blog on there? Are you posting regularly?
1: No, I shouldn't. Okay. I'm terrible at it. Okay. Yeah. You know, I spend all my David, all my time is. 90 percent of my time is spent you know doing gm general manager stuff writing correspondence and i think when you're talking about writing something one of the things that i've realized that i what i should do is write a uh, kind of a finally an authoritative compendium on just surplus what goes into them because i spend all my time trying to educate people from myths and wives tales that they've been fed and uh it's it's incredible like some of the, the the there's quite a lack of knowledge people are eager to learn they come to it wide open uh, I agree. but back in the 70s when i was a kid everybody kind of worked in a surfboard shop yeah uh, fixing dings or working their way up so everybody was very conversant with all the materials and foams and the types of glass and uh, you just didn't hear this level of superstition and Misinformation. Misinformation that you told totally. now. Yeah, because the information's largely been controlled by big, bigger companies that are—I won't name names—but they try, they, they try to technologize things. You know, under yeah. that word, uh, it's a Trumpian word. Um, it, they they do it for hang tag kind of things. this all stuff with like you know, uh, flex patterns and ride yeah. numbers and stuff. It's all shit, you know. It's right. Just,
0: I mean, I I think that their intentions are good, those companies. Like, their goal is to try to simplify it for the end user,
1: but I think it does create a lot of I think it ends up complicating it because... Yes, it does. The thing is, it's such a complex thing that what you need as the gatekeeper to that is a local shaper. I agree. That knows what he's talking about. And uh, maybe not a big label, maybe not a fancy label, but I think that that should be the one that indoctrinates people into it and not necessarily me but, but anyway in writing I spend so much time writing to people and I go back and I look at wow I just did like 5,000 words that's a whole article there just trying to explain somebody something about foam sandwich construction and S-glass or quad fins and why this does this and that and I just think why not just put it in a book so that people have a resource there I agree and and uh, totally nonpartisan, you know, you know apolitical no axe to grind it's just what what actually works and what doesn't and and why and, and some of the some of the explanatory stuff behind, like I said, everything that you do or put on a surfboard does something, but it's rarely what someone actually says it's doing. Like you you mentioned concaves, yeah. single to double concaves, single concaves through the middle of a pro level shortboard do nothing. The, it, the, not like they say they think it creates lift. It does not. All it does is it cuts a straight through a curve. So therefore, it's faster. And then you change your rails and your rail-to-rail thing. Of course, those boards are so submissive; it doesn't matter. But if you were towed behind a speedboat at 40 miles an hour, yes, right. the thing would probably lift. It's just like an airplane. You can step taxi a, you know, a Grumman Goose all day or something, or, or a Mallard or something. You can taxi, you can taxi that thing on the water all day below the threshold for lift-off, and it's not going to lift off. Yeah, it needs a certain amount of power, and that you know, the thing with the double concave behind. through the thing that's another thing it cuts flats through an area of curve and it creates like these accelerator pedals based on a certain resistance and a lot of those boards have a lot of curve in them so any place where there's going to be a straight cut into it it's going to give it a little bit more stiffness and therefore speed but I say why not why go in that circular mode why not just design the board to be fast to begin with and then put some little neutral components in it to give it that that real like uh, you know user that control harmony that they like um We can go on forever.
0: I'm concerned that we're running into happy hour right now because the sounds bar happy. is getting yeah, yeah. happier and happier. But the final question for everybody interviewed is always just, what was the last surfboard that you rode? I don't want to say watercraft because well, it's probably a single-man canoe,
1: but what's the last surfboard? Well, actually, the last I would have been, I have these 12-6 paddle surf vehicles that I've been making for about 20 years, and they're based on the old... Uh, Well, the old Olo boards, but also some boards that uh, Tom Mori and and Mike Doyle were building called these Ultra Glides in the 70s. So they're basically boards that I built to race in in prone paddleboard races in Hawaii and train on, but that you could also surf on. Okay. And like offshore reefs, and you can cover a lot of ground, but I was just blown away by how well they actually surfed. And so for the last 20 years, it's been the go-to board for me. because Really? Can, I can, well, I, where, I, where I grew up here on the Central Coast, places that are now crowded, uh, I can have relationships with those waves like they were in the 70s because I can go out on these boards and no one else can even go out. They couldn't even surf. You can surf slopey waves that don't break. And if you wear like a Garmin, you know, your GPS watch out there, you're in an hour you're covering like three or four miles and you're hitting like 18, 20 knots. Crazy. So that you can go through, put a kelp in on it, you go through kelp. So yeah, that's the last time I went out was a couple hours on one of my twelve sixes, twenty-one inches wide, five and a half inches thick, mm. and uh, boards that you can actually do actual races. You know, on. Do
0: you use them with a paddle ever, or are you just prone? No, the that'd whole be stand up. Yeah, yeah. yeah so you just use fun. them
1: prone the whole time. These I do, but I okay. have I have stand up race boards that we do when the conditions are right for down for downwind runs here sure. too. Sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you showed me some of those prone some of the boards you're talking about last time. I this saw this time you. of
1: year when there's south swells and the and the better reefs are out of the northwest wind and protected, those are those are the boards that are you can go out and just surf waves that you couldn't even even on a a good modern longboard you couldn't even catch.
0: Okay.
1: Fascinating. Um
0: What's your... In- I know you gave your website. Give listeners your Instagram and uh, best way to get a board I think from it's you. just the...
1: Well, uh, Nautro is the website and has the uh, email address being dave at nautro.com and then the Instagram is, I uh, believe it, uh, at Illusion Juice. Yep. Cool. And you can see some of the latest boards that have been uh, going through the shops there.
0: Yeah, the boards are beautiful. Oh, thank always you. always like seeing you. the boards.
1: Well, I thank my glassers, especially Waterman's Guild. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. Thank you. Cheers, Cheers, man.
0: But Dave thanks so much for participating in the conversation always look forward to reconnecting with you we do not get enough time together so I will make it a point spend more time in San Luis Obispo and I mean it's a killer killer place I don't know who wouldn't want to spend more time there so this will give me the opportunity to honor that goal of mine and for the listener follow Dave on Instagram at Aleutian juice leave him a comment tell him what you thought about this episode buy a board from him, support the local, small craftsmen, and um, find everything that we discussed in this episode on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Feel free to leave a comment in the comments section. And of course, rate and review this show in iTunes. Feel free to drop a shekel in the donation bucket on surfsplendorpodcast.com as well. And then of course, Tell friends about the show. That's how this show grows. The more listeners we have, the more we can entice interesting people like Dave Parmenter to devote 90 minutes to chatting with me, the woefully, intellectually inferior host. Just trying to keep up with Dave. All right. Thanks for giving me something to aspire to, Dave. And thank you to the listener for always listening. Really appreciate that. I'm going to get back into the ocean here in Costa Rica. I hope that you do the same wherever you're at. So, it is in that spirit that I, David Scales for Surf Splendor, encourage you get back in the ocean, share a couple of waves, and shred on. It's so, I'll tell you now.